Uh, my name is Dean Hendrickson. I have the pleasure of serving here as one of the pastors at Windsor Community Church. We are teaching through 1 Corinthians. It's been a great study for us. We were just talking on a pastor board meeting last week about how good God is that he brought us to 1 Corinthians to go through that and to study and how much we've learned. And I just hope that he has been as gracious to all of you as well, that you have learned as well. We're going through chapter 10. We went through the first uh, 13 verses last week and... And we're picking up in verse 14 today, and, and we start out, and it says, Therefore, my beloved, and again, one of the things that we always want to be careful of is whenever there's a therefore, we go back and find out what it's there for. Because there's something that was telling us before this that we have to go back and look at, and otherwise we're not going to understand what he's teaching us today and what this portion of the passage talks about. So Paul tells him in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. But if we go back the first 13 verses, he has masterfully taken the Corinthians through Exodus. He just masterfully taken them back and said, now, we know that those of you who are Jews in Corinth and those Gentiles as well, that you love Moses, that Moses was this wonderful man that did so much. And let me go back through and talk about how things went. As you came out of the promised land and he had a chance to go back and talk to them about their grumblings and about the idolatry worship and how when Moses was up on the mountain that they had to build a calf because they needed a God they could see and touch something that they could make and and have. And he'd gone through and he talked to them about how God had dealt with that and how thousands would fall in a single day to plagues or snakes or the destroyer. There are all these things that he was bringing them back and saying, remember, this is how God dealt with those that did not honor him. And he finishes it up then in verse 13 and says, no temptation has overtaken you, but that is such as common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. And then it brings us up to today. So he said, don't worry. Everybody is tempted. Everyone has those things in their life that try to draw them away from God, that try to take them down the wrong path. Everyone is there. It's common. But that's okay, because God is not going to leave you there. He's not going to put you in a spot that you can't withstand with his help. And isn't that exciting? Does that give anybody besides me incredible encouragement? Does it give anybody besides me sometimes a feeling of despair because you know it to be true and you don't flee and don't run? So he's coming back now. So Paul's coming back. He's laid this out for them, just beautifully brought them From point A to point B. And he said, this is what it looked like with the Israelites of old. Now, therefore, flee from idolatry. Don't get caught up in it. God's given you a route of escape. Use it. Don't be afraid. Don't see how close you can come before you turn and run. Flee. Get out of there. But it's neat as Paul talks to these guys because he just it's just the heart Paul has. Therefore, my beloved, those whom I love, 
those whom I care for. Please. He's pleading with them. You can almost hear it in his voice. Please flee from idolatry. Don't be caught up in that. And of course, there are all sorts of examples back in Exodus chapter 32 is where we deal with all of these issues that they were going through with regards to the idolatry and the problems. In 1 John 5.21, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 10.7, he's warning us about our idolatries. Now, it's easy when we look at this and we consider those man-made gods, those things of metal, of gold that the Israelites fashioned, the calf when Moses was up on the hill, or those things of wood or stone, the things that we've crafted. And we can talk all day about that. And most of us in here, it seems to me at least, would be very unlikely to have some type of image that they bow down to on a regular basis. So that's cool. That's that's good. And that's what what Paul's talking about in its purest form. But as we go on, we're going to find out that's not all Paul's talking about. That's not it. It's not just that that catches us and makes us stumble and fall. But that's one of the things. And in verse 15, Paul goes on. He says, I speak to you as wise men. You judge what I say. Now, it's an interesting perspective when you say that, because Paul has done that before, and he's done it very tongue in cheek. I speak to you of the greatest wisdom. And he doesn't mean it at all because he realizes they don't have the greatest of wisdom. And I worked and worked to try to come up with what he meant here. Was he tongue in cheek? Was he being serious? And to be honest with you, I couldn't come up with anything that told me he wasn't being sincere to these people. That he honestly meant this, that, that he was trying to draw them in to the truth of what he was saying here. And he was trying to encourage them. And he was trying to almost, I think, point back to we've gone through a lot of this letter. You guys asked me this series of questions and I have responded to you throughout the first nine chapters of Corinthians. And I, I really believe that Paul's sense here is one of sincerity when he's coming to them with this. And he's saying to them, I speak as to wise men. I'm giving it to you straight. I'm giving it to you with my uttermost sincerity behind it. I'm not here blowing smoke, guys. I'm really trying to connect with you on this one because this is an issue. He spent multiple chapters dealing with freedoms. He spent lots of time dealing with idols and offering meat to idols. And what do those things look like? I really think Paul's trying to connect with these guys. I don't think that he's kind of tongue-in-cheek on this one. And he's asking them to really evaluate. Really, with your open heart, hear what I say. Judge this for me. And now he's going to tell them what? Right? He's, he's laid a foundation in the first portion of this chapter. This is why I say what I've said. There's always an out. Flee from it. And now let's get into it. And let me show you why you need to hear me. I'm going to reinforce a couple things I've already said. I'm going to bring it back around again because this is important stuff. And I think it's critical for us as well. 
So in verse 16, he says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Well, there's nothing in that that's really ambiguous. There's nothing there that, that we look at and say, Oh, wow, that's the first time we've heard that. That's okay. Paul's still kind of giving him some foundation, some areas to look at. So the cup of blessing that he's talking about was the third cup used during Passover. It was the one that Christ used in the Last Supper to really talk about his token of salvation and that his blood was shed for them. Right? So that he's bringing this back that Christ talked about. He's bringing something that the Jews had celebrated for years since the leaving of, of, of Egypt. Who's talking about that? Is is this not a sharing? Is it not a communion? They were talking about communion. That's exactly what Christ was talking about at the Last Supper. The thing that we celebrate as communion is really that which was in the Last Supper, which referenced the Passover. And Paul was saying, aren't we sharing in Christ when we do that? Aren't we remembering him? Aren't we thinking of him when we do that? Aren't we partaking of him? This whole concept of communion is one in which we hold this in common. This is here for us in common when we're doing this. We're some commonality with Christ when we partake of communion because we're remembering how he shed his blood for us and how only his blood would be enough to atone for our sins. And he goes on to talk about the bread is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Isn't it the same? Isn't it that symbolism that Christ presented as he broke the bread first? And spoke on how it was his body. And then he shared the cup and discussed how it was a new covenant of his blood. Isn't that what we're doing? He said, aren't we in common when we do that? Don't we share that time with Christ? Well, of course, the answer is yes. Nobody's going to argue with that. Hey, absolutely. That's why we do this. Isn't that the coolest part about communion? We get an opportunity to remember Jesus hung on the cross for us. His blood was shed for us. His body was broken for us. And when we later celebrate communion, that's what it's about. We're remembering that. We're not magically turning the juice and the bread into his body and blood. But we're remembering what Christ did for us. And that's what Paul's asking these guys here. Isn't that what we do? Verse 17, he goes on to say, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So he's bringing them closer to the point that he's trying to hit here. He asks a question that everybody's going to say, yeah, yeah, that's why we do it. We do the bread and the wine, because we are, we are celebrating our communion with Christ, our oneness, our similarity with him because of that. And in verse 17, he goes back, he says, Now since, since there's one body, since Christ was one, and this bread, the body of his that was broken, since we're all coming together with that oneness, that makes us all one body, right? Okay, you can appreciate then the Corinthians sitting around in their group, with someone reading this letter to them going, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I'm there. I'm there. We, we partake of the one bread, Christ, 
that we're all one body. Yeah, I'm good with that. Yeah, that's this is this is all makes great sense. There's nothing Paul has said here that's rocked their boats yet. That's pretty good. However, verse 18. So look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? So now we're doing a little bit of moving around. We've moved back now pre-Christ. Pre-New Covenant. We've taken them from the covenant of Christ who died for our sins once and for all because we could never do it ourselves. We're going back to the old covenant, the law, the sacrifices, the bringing of the perfect blemish free sheep or goat or dove or whatever wheat, whatever it was based upon whatever they did. Right in Leviticus seven, verses 15 through 18, it talks about sacrificing and there's a short blurb on this is what you do now if you were to sin by accident you do this right it looks like this you bring this now if you were to sin on purpose well then it's this this is what you do and it's talking about bringing forth the different things and of course it's different you're going to have to offer more for one than the other and there was this whole series of things that were put out there really to point us to Jesus because he could never do it he could never find that perfect sheep or bull you could get close there's always something so paul now brings them back look at this nature now when they ate the sacrifices it's talking about when there was an offering made For them and for their sin, whoever partook of that was then accepting in that. The whole concept here is this group of people then identified with that offering and they identified with God in doing it. They recognized God's place in their life. They recognized they had sinned and therefore they were making the best atonement they could make for that. And they were acknowledging in that sacrifice that atonement and the fact that God was who God was and that they desired his favor in doing that. Otherwise, they wouldn't have bothered, right? If they didn't really think God was there or they didn't, didn't think God was who he was, they wouldn't have made the effort. Why not go ahead and keep this beautiful beast for yourself? Eat the whole thing yourself versus sharing it. But they did that because that's where their hearts were. Because they wanted to honor God and they wanted to worship him and, and they desired him. So here's the question. What do I mean then that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Well, it takes us all the way back to earlier verses in Corinthians where he's talking about people eating meat sacrificed to idols. So he's masterfully woven this great lesson. I love this about Paul. I love the way that God used him to pull this stuff together. And he just keeps coming back to the things that he knows people are really struggling with. So what about this idol thing? What do I mean? Is it is there something that's sacrificed to idol anything? Nothing. Is an idol anything? What's the big deal with this? Because we already know that in chapter 8 and 9, we talked about the fact that we have these wonderful freedoms. And we're going to go back and talk about those more next week. But we have these freedoms to basically eat anything we want. 
Right? There was a time where the Israelites were told you can you cannot eat certain things, unclean animals, of which one was the pig. Right? Can't eat pork. They also were told you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols because the meat then becomes tainted. Well, Paul was coming back and saying, no, it's fine. Not a problem to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But people were still struggling with that. But Paul's trying to help them understand that it's not the meat that's the issue here. It never was the meat that was the issue. It's never that. It wasn't the meat that was the issue when... When Moses was telling and the law came down and they said, don't eat pigs. It wasn't the fact that pigs were bad. It was setting things up to understand that, that there is this whole series of things that you'll never be able to do. So you understand it's all about your heart. It's your heart that is the issue, not the meat that sacrificed to idols is the issue. It's your heart that's the issue when you're getting too into that. And so Paul's been talking about that. And in verse 20, he says, no. The idol is nothing. The idol has never been anything because you know what? How many gods are there? One. There's only ever been one. There's one God. That's the, the, the great Jehovah. That's the God that Paul Worshipped. That's the God that Paul served. That's the God that brought the Israelites out of Egypt and through all these things. There's only ever been one God. The idols are nothing. They're sticks, they're wood, they're rocks, they're metal, but they're nothing. They've never been anything. Sacrificing meat to a stone doesn't change the meat. That's what Paul said. That was where he was going. But there's always the however. However. And that's what we see in in verse 20. No, but I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. And I think that's the whole crux of what Paul's trying to get at here. Can you eat meat sacrificed to idols? Sure. Meat's meat. Idols are not God. That's not the point. The point is, where are you when you're doing this? Or what, what has been the heart of the people as they go through that? If we look back to 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 8, it talks about this again. Therefore, the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, a small g, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled." But food will not commend us to God, and we are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. It's not about the meat. It's funny, isn't it, how we get so caught up in things? We get caught up in the meat sacrifice to idols, not the heart issue regarding the idols. It's about the meat for us. We want some meat. You know, it's getting close to lunchtime. We're all going to be hungry. 
I may go for a couple hours just to get you really hungry so that you can really think about this. Right? And, and it becomes for us about the things that it's not about in the first place. As Paul said, we're not better if we eat meat sacrificed to idols, and we're not worse if we eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's not about the meat. It's about our heart attitude. About what are you doing here? What is this whole picture? It's not the meat that's the issue. Deuteronomy chapter 32. There's some great stuff talking about the demons. Verses 15 through 18. This is a great lesson for us. You can change some words in here. But America grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick and sleek. Therefore he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God. To gods whom they have not known. New gods who came lately whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Does that strike anybody as where we tend to walk now in in America? What a what a sobering thought, that whole concept of, of this. But again, the perspective here, the idols are nothing. It's the issue, the reality that you're really sacrificing to something that you expect something back from. And if it isn't God, it's a demon. It's a pretty cut and dry situation. Psalms 106 shows something very similar to us. Uh, with regards to, to that, uh, that whole concept that we were reading just in Deuteronomy. So Psalm 106, 34 through 39, talking about the Israelites, and they didn't destroy the people as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and they learned their practices. They learned their works. And they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demon and shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices, and they played the harlot in their deeds. God's not all that impressed with us when we move over to the idols and the demons. Paul goes on to tell these guys... Your problem that you have here is in verse 21 is you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons and you can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And therein lies the problem. So we talk to them about communion. You can just hear the hearty. Yeah, you know, we're communing with God when we have the third cup and we break the bread. And that's wonderful. And we love that. But when they leave, what do they go to? What do they do? What does it look like there? In verse 22, Paul says, Are you going to provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than him, are we? God's not interested in competition from us, right? And what we do. And and it's easy because we can all sit back here and say, Don't have any molten images on my uh, fireplace. Nothing on my dashboard that I'm worshiping as I drive along. Uh... No, I don't have anything that I've carved out of wood, no rock. I don't have any idols. That's where our struggles are. If you read through Deuteronomy 32, Jeremiah 25, and Revelation 21, it talks a little bit about God and his jealousy and his unwillingness to share us. And aren't we fortunate for that? 
Aren't we fortunate that God chooses not to share us with the demons? But if we bring this all home, then the practicality part of this, since we don't have these images that we've created, what do we have? What's out there? Who or what are our idols? What are we dealing with right now? Is our job? Has a job become an idol to us? Is it because at home we don't get encouraged, but at work we do, that work becomes an idol? Is it money? Do we live for money? Is that what it's about for us? Is it having stuff? Do things take over our ability to worship God? Recognition? Is that it? Is that where we are in our lives where... We're at a point where we need that more than we need God. For every one of us, it's going to be something different. But I'm going to guess that every one of us has got one or two that we're struggling with. And the point here that Paul's trying to point out to these guys is you can't do that. You can't have it both ways. God doesn't have room for that. We live in this wonderful world or, or this time or, or just the way we are that we can we can segregate our lives. Right. We compartmentalize Sundays. I look like this. Everybody who sees me on Sunday and certainly from 10 until 1130 is going to recognize me as being a godly man. But sometimes on Sunday morning at 930, when I thought we should leave at 925, I don't look much like a godly man, and I certainly don't act like it. Time becomes an idol for me. It's one of my weakest points, time, right? What do I look like at work? Do people recognize me for being God's servant? Or am I just like everybody else at work? Can you notice the difference between us? We can't serve both. God is not interested in sharing us. We would be better off to remove the compartments and and live our lives all the time like we're going to talk about next week and for everything we do to the glory of God. That's what it's about. So what do we learn? What do we look at here? Flee, my beloved, from idolatry. You would never think about bringing your idols with you to come to the table of communion. Right? You would never think about bringing those things, carrying them in your pockets or holding on to them as you walked up to the communion. Neither would these people in Corinth. But they would go home and the Lord's table wouldn't be there anymore. And then it would be idle time. Then they'd have their idols to deal with. My prayer for all of us is that we recognize that we've got them. It's not an issue of if we do. It's an issue of where are they, what are they, and how fast can we run from them and and go. And, And that's what Paul's trying to tell us today. Where are you trying to partake of both God and your idol and stay away from that? It isn't about the meat. It's about the heart. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're so grateful that you are who you say you are. We're so thankful that you are so capable. And Lord, I I am sorry for the times that I don't run, that I don't flee the idolatry and the temptations. But I have hope. I have hope that you won't stop 
working on me. And I have hope that you won't stop working on all of us. And that, Lord, is all I can do. Because I know on my own, I can never become the man you need for me to be. So please, Lord, please continue to work in our hearts. Please continue to change us. Help us to to recognize where we're struggling. Help us to see where, where we continue to nail Christ to the cross daily. And that we just can't quite seem to accept that one and forever atoning death. Help us, Lord. We, we are in such need of you. Please guide us. Help us to take this forward, to not end today, to not, as we walk out the door, shed all that you have put before us, but rather, Lord, that we would embrace it and we would take it with us all week long, everywhere we are in every situation. Lord, would you continue to uh, encourage us as we look at ways to use the money that you have put before us with the, the great giveaway? How exciting it is to hear about the two testimonies we heard today, Lord, and how you're already working. And I know there are others as well, and just can't wait to hear what you're doing in your kingdom because of that. And help keep us out of the way. It's in Jesus' wonderful and holy name we pray. Amen.